Well, let's go ahead, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. For three whole chapters, the Apostle Paul has been touring us around, as we saw last week, around Ephesians 4s. He's been spending time talking to us in detail about our position in Christ. He's been spending time fanning into flame just wonderful, wonderful truths about who we are in Christ and what Jesus Christ has done for us, our position before God in Christ. Well, here in chapter 4, he's going to be changing tack somewhat. His attention is no longer towards position. His attention is towards practice. And he's going to be spending time for the remaining three chapters talking to us about our grace-motivated response to our position in Christ. It's a very different flavor, very different tone. We've been spending a lot of time in indicative statements, but now we're coming into imperative commands on the back of the first three chapters. And so what glorious chapters these are. So if you'd like a title for this morning's message, it's A Call to Unity. And let's read from verse 1 through to the end of verse 6 of chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around this text, I for one am very aware of my need for you. Lord, would you humble our hearts today as we begin to understand what you're calling us to as Christians? As we begin to gather around your charges, the clear commands of how we're now to respond, living in light of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Lord, give me grace. And Lord, give us ears to hear your word. Lord, dazzle us with your word and soften our hearts. And Lord, help us to see ourselves in the mirror and then go away and make changes. For your glory, Lord. Amen. My favorite present this past Christmas was something my wife got me. She got me the 10-part series of the Pacific. And I love war-type stuff. I just think it's so, it's, so, it's so humbling in many ways as you see what men went through and all that they went through. And the Pacific is, is just like that. It follows a U.S. Marine Company's time in World War II, following all the fighting that that company got involved in as U.S. Marines in the Pacific region. And it is a wonderful 10-part series. So if you're interested, I've got it. You can borrow it. You'd be more than welcome. But my favorite part is in episode three. In episode three, John Bazalone is to be awarded the Medal of Honor. And he deserves it. He has performed some absolute heroics in the Guadalcanal. He's gone around in what he's done in the, in the way he's been leading his, his men and caring for his men. He's done some absolutely heroic things. He can just save their lives on numerous occasions. And so President Roosevelt has seen to it that John Bassalone should, de- should deserve and indeed get the Medal of Honor. 
That's the highest medal you can get in the U.S. Marines. That is, that is off the charts. They've barely ever given many of those out. And John Bassalone is going to get one. The challenge is that the day before John Bassalone gets it, he gets into some fights, he's been drinking in pubs. And so the captain calls him and he calls him to attention and he stands him in the office. And as the captain looks John Bassalone in the eyes, this is what he says. He says, son... This is the highest honor our country can award on a serviceman. So from now on, try to act like it's yours. Son, this is the highest honor that our country can give a serviceman. This is an incredible honor, the Medal of Honor. So from now on, try to act like it's yours. You know, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing to all of us now here in chapter 4. He spent three chapters explaining to us that on your life as Christians, God of all grace has pinned on you the medal of salvation. And it is an incredible salvation. It's to know that you're forgiven and adopted and reconciled, knowing that heaven is your home, knowing that God has called you to unity with one another, to do life together so that the very angels in the heavenly realms can look on and see the manifold wisdom of God. He's saying to a son, daughter, you have been given an incredible gift of love, and it's called salvation. And so right now at the start of chapter 4, he looks us in the eyes, and he's saying, son, daughter, Having been given the medal of salvation, start to act like it's yours. He's spending time going to communicate to us, not about our position, but now our practice. The great and incredible calling that is on our lives. You see, this is not a calling that we have earned. None of us have earned our salvations. You learn that all the way, chapters 1, 2, and 3. As for you, Paul says in chapter 2, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. The only thing we bring into our salvation is our deadness and our sin. Everything else is Jesus. Everything else is the God of all grace pursuing us. We haven't earned this great achievement, this great medal of salvation that we wear on our chests. hasn't been earned by us. It's been earned by Jesus Christ. It hasn't been achieved, it's been received. He has bestowed upon us the gift of salvation. He has bestowed upon us the medal of salvation because of his grace and because of his love. Likewise then, it's very important that as we study chapters 4, 5, and 6, that we understand that all this application will in no way add to our justification. You see, this is where we can get confused. And this is where we'll start to become legalists if we're not careful and subjective and start to struggle with condemnation. It's very important we understand that all of the next probably 16 weeks looking at how we apply chapters 1, 2, and 3, that we do not in any way then start to think that it is my justification that is dependent upon my behavior. It's not. Your salvation... The glories of your great salvation are fully dependent not on your work, but on the work of Jesus Christ. It's a medal that he has bestowed upon you, not dependent on how you now behave. It has been bestowed upon you because of how he behaved, because of his actions and his great work in your place. We don't earn our salvation, we exhibit it. We don't merit our salvation, we mark it. We don't deserve our salvation, we demonstrate it. We never earn it. We simply exhibit it. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. Folks, 
You have been issued with the medal of salvation. Wear it on your chests and now begin to exhibit what that difference that has made in your life. Begin to now reveal in your lives and walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Your calling is indeed great, so now live in light of that. Just as the captain said to John Barcelona, from now on, try to act like it's yours. That's what Paul's saying. From now on, chapter 4, try to act like this great salvation, God's great love, is indeed yours. So for the next three chapters, Paul is going to be unpacking that walk. He's going to be detailing for us what that walk looks like, how we are to put one foot in front of the other in Christianity and therefore bring glory to God as we work, walk in a manner worthy of the call. And so in this text, very specifically, Paul makes a start on that. He turns the corner of chapter 4 and he begins to make a start on what this walk then really looks like. And there's only two things he does. He gives us a command, a very clear charge on our lives as Christians that we're to apply And then he gives us, number two, a strategy, a very clear strategy for specific things, for specific character qualities that we're to embody in our lives so that the command can actually be worked through in our lives. So if you want to know very specifically what this text is about, what the big idea is, what is the nail that Paul is going to be driving all the way through these these verses one through six, it's this. Walking in a manner worthy of the call will require that we eagerly maintain unity among us all. You want to know what this is about? Here it is. Walking in a manner worthy of the call will require that we eagerly maintain unity among us all. That's the one nail that he is going to hammer all the way through verses 1 through 6. Eagerly maintain the unity. So what's the command, number one? Well, we see the command very clearly in verse 3. He says this, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That isn't a suggestion. That isn't an encouragement. That isn't a, you know what, maybe you want to try really hard, give it a go. He's saying, no, 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 no command. Be eager. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You see, as far as Paul is concerned... Unity in the context of the local church is vitally important. As far as Paul is concerned, this isn't just an optional extra, but this is something that is fundamental and absolutely vital that we get driven into our hearts and our minds. It's the very first thing he picks on as he turns the corner of application, unity. You must be unified as a local church. See, Paul knows full well that the context for the local church is the context through which, as each body part does its work, people in our community see Jesus. He's aware that as each part does its work, we are the hands and the feet and the legs and the arms of Jesus Christ in our very communities. Well, to do that takes unity. We need to be unified if we're really going to represent Jesus in our communities. He knows that it's as we link arms and go through unity together that the very heavenly realms will look on, as we saw in chapter 3, and see the manifold wisdom of God. They will see as we link arms and do life together in unity, the very wisdom of God, who takes people who are by nature sinners and saves them to himself and reconciles them to one another, so that the very angels look on and say, your plan, it's incredible, and it's working. 
Paul knows full well that it's our unity that then will enable us to grow and mature and to care for one another and to do life together prior to heaven being our home. It's the context for that. And so right up front, he wants to make it clear to us, right, this is what you need to do. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. See, in verses 4 through 6, Paul takes the time to explain to us the divine origin of unity. And there's one word. I nearly call this message as one. Because there's one word that, that comes seven times in those three verses, and it's one. Look at it together. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you get it? One. Unity is profoundly important to Paul, and he wants us to understand that unity has a divine origin. You see all three persons of the Trinity in those three verses, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's helping us see that divine origin is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that divine origin is all where your call began and where it should continue. It is a divine origin of unity. And so in verse 3 then, knowing that he's going to go on to say that and give that history lesson, he says, listen, be eager to maintain that unity. The unity that started in the Godhead and the Trinity, eagerly maintain it. John Stott, in his commentary on, on Ephesians in this particular passage, says, eager to, that being a present participle, is a call for continuous diligent activity. It is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, his sentiment, his reason, his physical strength, and his total attitude. The imperative mood found in the Greek text excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude, Yours is the initiative. Do it now and mean it. Such are the true overtones of verse 3. Unity is very important to Paul. And you know, as this week, as I began to consider this, I began to realize that, you know, we can be eager about so many different things, can't we? We can be eager to get married. We can be eager to go on holiday. We can be eager to move house. We can be eager to get our houses sorted out. We can be eager to land the job that we want so that our life can start to unfold as we perceive it should. We can be eager for time to speed up as we're looking forward to things and things are happening in our lives and we can be eager that that time will speed up so that we can get there. There's loads of things that in our lives we can be very, very eager about. But you know what? We're not commanded to be eager about any of those things. We are commanded to be eager about maintaining unity. See, so often in church life, I think we can be passive to that. We cannot even have it on the radar as something that we need to action, something that we need to actively do. We just think that this is something that just happens. We're passive with, oh, we're, very, we're family, we're close. Great, but not according to Paul. He's saying, yes, you are family, but you need to be eager to maintain that. Eager to maintain that unity. And so here's my question. Are you, am I, are you eager to maintain that unity? Are you eager to demonstrate the unity that we have in Sovereign Grace Church Sydney? 
Are you eager and alert to any attitude or conversation that could affect the expression of unity in this local church? Are you eager, waiting at the, on the tips of your toes, eager to maintain the unity and eager to come against anything that could possibly divide us? Are you eager? See, for Paul, eagerness is vital. And it is vital that we are eager to unify. And folks, I think we should seriously take this on board for us as a local church. You see, we're new. We're only 22 weeks old or something crazy. We're not even half a year old. We're just so small. We're slightly deformed, but hey, we are so small in our, in our life as a local church. And we can think that because everything's going well, because everything is so exciting, that we have got unity. And I think we have. But I nonetheless believe wholeheartedly that we should be eager to maintain it. We need to guard our hearts. You see, given the amount of indwelling sin in our hearts, given the amount of indwelling sin that is in this room, both on this stage and down there looking at me now, and given the fact that we actually have an enemy who wants to divide us, an enemy that wants to destroy us, an enemy that wants to cut us apart so that the story of Sovereign Grace Church and the effectiveness of that is nullified, we need to be wise and we need to be vigilant and we need to guard the deposit that Paul has given us in the gospel and we need to be eager to maintain unity. This is vital. One of the things I love then about the Apostle Paul is he not only sort of lays it out there for us and says, okay, here's the headline, here's the thing that you need to grasp. He then tells us how to do it. And I love that. You know, there is definitely an engineer in the Apostle Paul. That's probably why he was a tent maker. He just liked fixing things and figuring out how things worked. Well, he does that so well in his writing of Scripture. And in verse 2, he gives detailed attention to the strategy, number 2. So he's given us the command in verse 3 to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. But in verse 2, he explains to us, how do we do that? How can we actually ensure that we are positioned for unity in this local church. And he goes through four things, four character qualities that need to be cultivated and then modeled in our lives. The first of those is this. It says in verse 2, with all humility. What is the first character quality vital if unity is going to be the story of any given local church? Well, number one, right up there, humility. And not just humility, all humility. That's an important word. It doesn't stick all in front of gentleness or all in front of patience or all bearing with. No, all humility. Not just superficial humility that really tips the head to humility but really isn't functioning. Not superficial humility, not partial humility, but all humility is going to be necessary if any given local church is truly going to be walking in unity together. You know, this would have been <laughs> an incredibly wild statement to make in, in a first century Greco-Roman culture because humility wasn't rated in the first century Greco-Roman culture. If you said to somebody, oh, you're just so humble, they'd probably give you a smack around the face because that was just pathetic. It was a sign of being a wimp, the sign of just being quite useless. So they would call slaves and servants humble. The point was, oh, they're just a bit pathetic. This is all they can do. 
And if you were a Roman or a Greek, you didn't want to be humble. You wanted people to know how good you were, how clever you were, all the different things you could do. You wanted people to look at your property and see how successful you were. You wanted people to look at the amount of slaves you had so that it would pump you up, so that people thought well of you. Humility was not on the radar 2,000 years ago in this culture. And yet the truth is, it's not really on the radar in this culture now either, is it? When was the last time you read a story in the paper that had to do with somebody being humble? They're not common. People are reported in the paper because of their profound activities, because of their ability to make money, because of their beauty, because of their celebrityism, how good they are at acting or singing or all those different things. Our culture worships people's successes. And yet Paul says that's not the way it is to be in a local church. That's to be humble. John MacArthur says it this way. It's something I found so helpful. He says, although humility is at the heart of the Christian character, no virtue is more foreign to the world's ways. The world exalts pride, not humility. Throughout history... Fallen human nature has shunned humility and advocated pride. For the most part, humility has been looked on as weakness, something ignoble to be despised. People unashamedly claim to be proud of their jobs, their accomplishments, their achievements with their children, and on and on. Society loves to recognize and praise those who have accomplished something outstanding. Ostentation? Boasting, parading, and exalting are the world's stock in trade. It's pretty perceptive. I think that's true. I went to a grammar school growing up, and so we don't really have too many private schools in the UK. They do exist, but nobody really goes from because nobody's got any money. But here, the, they obviously exist a bit more. But I went to the Queen Elizabeth Royal Free Grammar School. I remember the very first day I arrived, it was just a public school, but you had to sit some exams, and, and I got in. And the very first day they arrived, they lined us up and they said, boys, you are the top 10% in this county. And if you put your mind to it for the next eight years of your life, you can be anything you want and you can do anything you want. So let's get on it. And I just thought, I am the man. I'm 11. I am the man. I can do whatever I want. This is just profound. And they fed that in my life over eight years. By the time I left... School, I was probably the most arrogant person you would have ever met. Because my culture had breathed that into me, that yes, you are amazing. Let us hit our knees. I'm sure that every time you apply for a job, you'll get it. I found that not to be true about a year and a half later. But I left school thinking that would be the case. My culture, and I think our culture, breathes pride into us in a way that often we're not even perceptive or thinking that it is so evidently there. John MacArthur continues, Unfortunately, the church often reflects that worldly perspective and pattern. But in doing so, we contradict the very gospel we claim to promote. Because the hallmark of the gospel is not pride and self-exaltation, but humility. Folks, if we are going to be standing in unity as a local church, all humility is absolutely vital. The Oxford English Dictionary, the only one that really counts, says humility is this. It says humility is having a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. You don't read too much about that. 
But Paul says this is vital. Having a low or modest estimate of your own importance is the very thing Paul is saying here. You've got to clothe yourself with all of that. You've got to consider yourself much lower than those around you. In light of God's holiness and your sinfulness, you must bow the knee and consider all those around you more important than yourself. Because that's how you will maintain the unity. John Stott is then very helpful in in helping us apply that and helping us explain how that really works through then into the local church. He says, in every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. I love that. Pride, greatest enemy. In unity, pride is the greatest enemy. In unity, humility is the greatest friend. Proverbs 13, verse 10 says, Pride only breeds quarrels. (laughs) You show me a quarreling church, and I'll show you pride. Because more often than not, that's what's happening. You show me a church that is dividing up and splitting on peripheral issues. More often than not, you will find the distinct presence of pride. Not a low estimate of oneself, but a high estimate of oneself. As if to say that my needs and my preferences must be honored, otherwise I'm off. Pride brings division. Humility brings unity. Pride is our greatest enemy. Humility, our greatest friend. When you see division, pride will probably be there. When you see unity, I can guarantee humility will definitely be there. And that is exactly what Paul's done us here. Number two, then, the second item on the strategy that we need to cultivate is gentleness. Jerry Bridges says it this way. He says, perhaps no grace is less prayed for and less cultivated than gentleness. You know, in my estimation, I think he's probably right. I mean, I was thinking about that just this week as I came across that quote and thought, it's true. I mean, I've been a pastor for nearly, nearly 11 years now, and nobody has ever come to me as far as I can remember and say, hey, Dave, is there any way you could just pray for gentleness? It, it's not come up a lot on the radar, you know. It's not something that often we think about. And I thought for the same for myself. It's not something that I've sort of considered as a category that I need to really seek to grow in and operate in. And yet, according to Paul, we, we really do. See, so often I think gentleness is something that we consider to just be a, per, a part of a person's character. So, oh, she's very gentle, or he's very gentle. We say that about my son. We say, oh, you know, he's just so gentle, as if he was just born that way, which in part he was. But it, it is no way a godliness issue. It's just part of a person's humanity. It's just what they're like. And yet that's not biblical. See, as biblically defined... Gentleness is found in Galatians 5 verse 23. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that we are meant to seek the Holy Spirit for and then meant to cultivate and seek to work through in our lives. You know, Matthew 11, Matthew 11 houses for us a wonderful scene. It's the only scene in the Bible where Jesus actually talks about his own character. So you don't find in the Bible Jesus saying, oh, check me out, aren't I good? It, It doesn't work like that. But in Matthew 11, he does take the time When he's exhorting the crowd and saying, come to me, all you are heavily burdened. You know the scene? And he's saying, listen, I want to give you rest. He spends time, if you you look at it in Matthew 11, he spends time to say, listen, come to me, all you are heavily laden. Come to me, I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. 
It makes sense in the context of what he's talking about. But he's also just told us something very important about himself. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is gentle and has a low disposition of heart. The Spirit of Christ then came into your life to give you that. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing right here is saying, you know what? For you as a local church, if you are going to walk in unity, you need to be humble, which is lowly in heart, but you also need to be gentle in the way you communicate together, in the way you write emails, in what you say on Facebook, in what you say over the phone, in your texts. Be gentle. Be humble. Be gentle. Because those will create unity. Number three, patience. The third thing that Paul brings up in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. You know, what Paul is basically getting at here is our behavior when we're wronged, when we're hurt or when we're disappointed or when we're sinned against. What Paul is helping us see is that even when we are mistreated by one another, we must work hard not to retaliate in anger or hurt or disappointment. We must work hard in that moment to respond with great patience. Tell you what, that that humbles me. And that affects me. How many times am I tempted not to respond with patience to somebody? And yet Paul is saying, no, this is going to be vital. If you're going to keep unity in any given local church, not only humility and gentleness are important, but patience is also vitally important. You see, what Paul is not saying here, he is not saying that there should never be a time when we faithfully and graciously in love go and address somebody. He's going to help us see that as the chapter unfolds. There's a time to speak the truth in love to somebody. There's a time to say, listen, what you said to me there really, really hurt me. And I don't think you meant to hurt me. And I love you enough to bring this to your attention because I love you. Paul's not saying don't do that. He's saying, no, that's very important. There are times, given the nature of indwelling sin in our lives, when we'll blow it with each other, when we'll walk through things together and we have sinned against somebody else. So Paul's not saying don't go and address that somebody in kindness and grace and mercy. What he's saying is even if you address them, don't do it in anger and hurt and retaliation. Do it in humility and gentleness and patience. Take your time. Be patient with that individual. Jerry Bridges says this aspect of patience is the ability to suffer under the mistreatment of others without growing resentful or bitter. The occasions for exercising this quality are numerous. They vary from malicious wrongs all the way to seemingly innocent practical jokes. You know, given the amount of indwelling sin in this room right now, I can ensure you that there will be many occasions even this week to exercise this patience. I mean, it's just true. I mean, given the nature of sin in this room, that is like job security for me. You know what I'm saying? This is just the way it works. Sin in people's lives is job security for all pastors, and it's the way it works. We all have it there. I have it there. I'm not coming to you this morning as someone who's preaching, saying, oh, check it out, I've got it together. I may as well be sitting on the front row hearing exactly the same thing. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with attitudes and difficulties where we don't want to respond that great. And even though we we do want to respond well, we, we don't actually manage it. That's sin. That is indwelling sin alive and well in our lives. And I don't want to excuse that. 
And I don't want to promote that. I'm not saying don't worry about it. Let's just give it a go. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is a reality check. What I am saying is that as your pastor and friend, I want to prepare you for the week ahead. And the reality is, in the week ahead, you will probably be wronged. You'll probably be hurt by somebody. You'll probably be mistreated by somebody. You'll probably be the end of a joke that you think is inappropriate. You must, in that moment, to keep the unity, minimally respond patiently, humbly, gently, patiently. And number four, then, he says, bearing with one another in love. If you and if I am going to demonstrate unity, then bearing with one another in love is also vitally important. See, the reality is there's so many things in life that aren't actually sin issues. They're just life. They're preferences. They're quirks. They're the people that we are. And we all have them, don't we? We, don't like, to, we like to pretend we haven't, but we have. We've all got quirky things about us that we do, and we're all different in so many different ways, and they're not necessarily sin issues. They're parts of life, and they're the parts of life that the Bible says, you know what, in those things, don't address everybody all the time. Enjoy it, because we're different. Enjoy the differences and bear with one another in love. We used to have a guy at Christchurch that he would come to you and talk to you at the end of the meeting. And he insisted, he's one of these guys that insisted about speaking to you like about there. You know what I'm saying? We, we all know him. And that, that he was like there. And so you would back away and it would be like the tango or something and he would come with you. And he's like, mate, this is just so awkward. Is there any way you can like give me space? I'm just, just, this is too much to bear. And yet it wasn't a sin issue. It was just something I needed to bear with. We've all had lunches with people when they insist on talking to you and they've got a lot of things they want to talk about, but even though they're eating, they still want to talk. And you notice there are bits of cheese flying onto the table. I mean, it is just, it is just irritating. It's not sinful, but it's, but it's irritating. It's things that you think, oh, do we have to put up with those different things? Do we have to make do with those things? Do I, I just don't want to really get, spend time with that person anymore. Because I might get cheese on my face, which is very embarrassing when that happens. Given the amount of people in this room, we will all have very different preferences. Some people will love it. And when we have preachers here that are loud and passionate, some people will love that. For other people, it'll drive you crazy. You like a guy to talk very gently as if you're sitting with the doctor and he's telling you about your life. That's okay. It's preference. It's not a sin issue. Some people will love it when we sing choruses. And you will love the fact that we sing a chorus, not once, not twice, but three times. And you will love the fact that, oh, I am just dwelling in this now. Amazing love, how can it be? And there are other people that would rather sing a hymn. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, sit down. And it's your preference. It's what you like. It's the things that make you tick. Some of you will love it. When your life group starts at 7.30 on the nail, because that is commitment to this local group. And you will love it when it starts on time and finishes by nine. You will love the fact that it is concise in the way it is. Other people will be, well, I just like the Spirit to lead on these evenings. And I think we're just socializing right now till about eight o'clock. And if the Spirit leads that we pray till 11, that will be lovely. We're different with different people. None of those issues that I've mentioned there are sin issues. They're preference issues. And you know what the Bible says to that, which is vitally important. 
It is vitally important. The Bible says to that, it does not say to that that we just accommodate and therefore split into many different congregations based upon how we feel about these different things. It doesn't say that. No, it says you stick together and you bear with one another in love. Church isn't meant to be about multiple preferences and then splitting off. Church is about multiple preferences and then uniting for the glory of God and displaying to a world that we can bear with one another in love. Even though there's things that wouldn't be my preference, that's okay. They're preferences. But this is my family and I'm sticking with them and I'm standing side by side with them because that's my local church. Some things aren't sin issues. They don't need to be adjusted. They just need to be bared with. And so how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit? By cultivating humility, gentleness, patience, and by bearing with one another in love. Now, this week I was just thinking about those things some more and, and really starting to think through why did Paul put the word all in front of humility? And why did he pick that first? Because you see, with the Apostle Paul, he doesn't do anything by accident. He doesn't do things by, oh, you know, just happen to come out of his mouth that way. It's not like that. He's very deliberate in the way he talks. Humility is very deliberately first. It is the very first thing he says we to do. Having helped us see that the badge of salvation is on our hearts, the very first thing he says is, with all humility. All humility. And as I got to thinking about that this week, I realized that's the one thing that he mentions in nearly all of his other letters as well. He doesn't always mention gentleness. He doesn't always mention bear with one another in love. But he always mentions humility. It's as if Paul's answer to everything is humility. If you're going to make it as a church, be humble. It's the one thing that he wants to drive into our hearts, a very clear, low opinion of ourselves when it comes to our importance. And as I thought about that some more, I realized, you know what? Patience and gentleness and bearing with one another are all overflows of humility. See, if you're humble, you're gentle. If you're humble, you do. An overflow of that is you do bear with one another. If you're humble, you really do have a low opinion of oneself. Patience is the product of that. Because you want to be patient with others because you love them. And you prefer them. Humility to Paul then is is the key ingredient in this text. See, humility comes... C.J. Mahoney says that humility comes when we see ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And I think he's right. When you see yourself honestly in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, you emerge humble. What have chapters 1, 2, and 3 been about? God's holiness and our sinfulness. If we don't emerge from chapters 1, 2, and 3 affected in our hearts and humbled, Realizing that maybe I'm not so special. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. It doesn't appear that I brought that much to the party as much as I thought. In fact, it appears that he chose me. He forgave me. He pursued me. He sealed me with the Holy Spirit. So yes, I am going to make it, but not because of me, but because of him. In fact, the only thing I thought that I brought to the party, faith, Ephesians 2 verse 9 tells me that even that was a gift. So I'm not as special as I thought, but I tell you who is special. God is special. He's amazing. He is the majesty of all. He is the true savior. And so I am going to live my life bowing on my knee and following him all the days of my life. You know, when you get on your knees before the Lord, 
That's humility. It's lowering yourself before the Lord, realizing I'm not in control and charge. He is. You know what the natural product of that is? Gentleness in the way we talk, patience in the way we talk, and bearing with one another. Because we're humbled. We start preferring others, affected by who they are. And so just by way of closing, by way of application, I've just got 10 quick fire points on how do we cultivate humility. I want to be useful for you. I want to help you. I want to help you grasp this. Because if I'm reading this correctly, if we are humble, then we will be able to be patient and gentle and bear with one another, which will mean we're able to keep unity. So how do we keep humility? Nobody panic. It isn't going to take me half an hour. It'll only take me a few minutes. But listen up. Number one, and please understand as I go through these, they're not mine. As your pastor, I have never, ever had an original thought in my entire life. They just don't seem to arrive. I just read a lot and listen to a lot, and I seek to learn from others. And when it comes to this, how do we cultivate humility? I I wouldn't want you to read in any way that I feel I have much to offer on that, because I don't feel that way. I'm not speaking as a guy that, check it out, I've arrived, follow me. All I'm saying here, these are 10 things that are helping me. They're helping me battle my pride. And they're helping me cultivate humility. And I'm on the biggest journey of all. And I'm, I'm more than likely behind all of you. But here's 10 things that are helping. Number one, study the attributes of God. Particularly incommunicable attributes. The attributes of God are basically, the incommunicable attributes of God are basically the attributes of God that we're not like. So his infiniteness, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his infiniteness. They're all parts of God that make him to be massive, that make him to be huge. That has the effect of humility. Matthew Henry writes this. Check this out because I love this. The greatest and best man in the world must say, by the grace of God, I am who I am. But God simply says this, I am who I am. Don't you love that? We have to say, by the grace of God, I am who I am, but not God. He says, no, I am the great I am. I am who I am. God is massive in his worth and splendor. God is massive in his infiniteness and his omnipresence and his omniscience. He is absolutely huge. And when we study him, it's like standing by yourself at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. You suddenly realize, I'm not that big. I'm not that important. (laughs) Exactly. You know what you feel in that moment? Humility. You have an accurate vision of yourself, because that's the truth. Number two, study the doctrines of grace. So election, effectual calling, justification, perseverance of the saints. Study the doctrines of grace, because when you realize that fundamentally, the only thing that I bring to the salvation party is my sin, it kind of helps you with true, accurate thoughts about yourself. No one emerges from the doctrines of grace incredibly proud. You emerge from the doctrines of grace, praising God, as you realize it's all him. And I am so small, and he could have left me, but he didn't. He came after me. Lord, you have all the boasting. I'm proud in you. Number three, preach the gospel to yourself daily. An excellent book on that is C.J. Mahaney's Living the Cross-Centered Life. If you've never read that, read it. it is, that is a life changing book, living the, gospel, living the cross-centered life. 
get it? Quite simply, it's hard to be proud at the foot of the cross. If you spend time daily standing near the cross, it is very difficult to then emerge from that experience proud for the rest of the day. It affects you as you realize he was there for me. Number four, begin each day acknowledging your need and gratitude for God. Begin each day acknowledging your need and gratitude for God. You start with this. Without God, you can achieve nothing that day. Without God, you won't be breathing by the end of the day. Without God, there will be no coherent words come out of your mouth for the rest of the day. Without God, you will not be able to influence your day in any shape or form. (laughs) We need him. And so actively start your day reminding yourself, Lord, I need you. You sustain me. I think pastoring has helped me with that. Because honestly, I start most days thinking, oh no, when are they going to find out I don't know what I'm doing? (laughs) It makes you dependent upon the Lord. It makes you dependent and crying out for him for grace. Lord, I need your help. I need your wisdom. Start the day that way. Number five, finish each day mindful of your need for sleep. You know, sleep is a very humbling factor. Even the brightest person in the world, the cleverest person in the world, the most energetic person in the world, starts to go so many hours that he needs or she needs sleep. Start reminding yourself of that need. Be mindful of it. Don't just let it pass by, but let it pass by as a moment to grab the fact that I'm not very special. Only God needs no sleep. I have to sleep every day. And I have to sleep for quite a long time. Otherwise, I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I'm just all over the place. But God doesn't need to sleep. So before you go to sleep, one of the practices that has helped me is before my eyes actually closed and, and then I'm just comatosed, Lord, I'm reminded right now that you are the creator and I'm just little on me. Thank you. Seize it as a moment to be humble and affected to get an accurate vision of who you really are and how important you're really not. Number six, regularly review your testimony and listen to others. I know that's what you're doing in life groups at the moment. It's fantastic. Keep doing it. Because as you review your testimony, you realize it really wasn't me. It's all God. Yes, that will help to inform an accurate decision of yourself. Number seven, guard against trying to understand everything in trials. This is important. Guard against trying to understand everything in trials. You see, there's so much that happens in our lives and so many things that we go through that in all reality, they're mystery. They can't be fully explained. You're not going to be able to sit with a pastor or a group leader or a friend and they're going to say, oh, no dramas, I get it. Here it is. There's so many things that we go through and we walk through that you just think, I... I don't know. When our son was born, and he was born with a cleft palate, and then on the first operation, we discerned that he, well, we didn't discern, but we found out he also had two holes in his heart and would need heart surgery. You can think, Lord, what's up with that? What, why is that? The temptation can be to want to try and understand it. Why are you doing this? 
But in humility, we must guard against that. We must allow mystery on occasions to be mystery. If we're going to walk humbly, my friends, then we must allow mystery to function in the way the Bible says it should. Jerry Bridges says, we tend to assume that we would understand if God would only explain. You ever felt like that? Lord, I will trust you and I will trust you beyond all trust if I can only understand. But by very nature, in regard to that, we simply don't believe that his understanding no one can fathom. If you truly believe that his understanding no one can fathom, then we must get comfortable with mystery. It isn't our job to try and figure everything out. It's our job on occasions to bow the knee and say, Lord, I don't understand. Such things are too lofty for me to attain. But I do understand you, and I know you hold me. And so if all beneath me, as we sang earlier on, falls away, I know that you are God. Get comfortable with mystery. Number eight, diligently invite and pursue input from others. Proverbs 11 verse 14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. You know, a proud man and a proud woman, here's one of the ways you can spot them. They don't take any counsel. They don't inquire after it. They don't feel they need it. I've been there. You get into this time frame of thinking, I just see 2020 vision all the time. I see 2020 vision on my heart, and I see 2020 vision on what I need to do in my life. And although we, we basically ascribe to the fact that my life is not Jesus and me, when it comes to decisions and dealing with our hearts, it's how we operate. I don't, I don't need anybody else. I don't need counsel of other people. You know, I've chatted to God about it and we're good to go. I felt called. What? So your feelings trump counsel. Well, your feelings can be deceptive, but Proverbs 11 isn't deceptive. And it makes it clear to us that there is goodness in the midst of counselors. Folks, who can discern their own hearts, eh? The longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize I cannot discern my own heart. I just can't do it. Sometimes I don't know whether I'm coming or going. Sometimes I think I'm doing the right thing and I'm not. Sometimes I think I'm doing the wrong thing and other guys say, no, you're doing the right thing. And you think, oh, I can't discern my own heart so often. We need others in our lives for that. And I think we can get into the habit pattern of, well, I have an open door policy. So if anybody wants to give me any counsel, that's fine. Or if anybody wants to speak into my life because they're observing something, that's fine. Don't operate an open door council. They, they don't work. People find it very difficult to speak into our lives in that way. But when you say to somebody, listen, this is what my wife did to me this week. She sat me down on date night. and She's in crash, so I can tell you. And she said, Dave, if there is one thing you would change in my life right now, what would it be for the glory of God? And I thought, that's humble. She's not just saying, oh, I'll speak into my life when you fancy it. She said, no, I'm sitting you down now and I want your input. I want to invite it and I want to diligently pursue it. What would you change? How do you think I'm doing with the kids? And you think, bless your heart. I was too proud to ask her back just in case she said something. (laughs) (laughs) But I was affected by her humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There is grace and abundance for my wife. It's because she walks humbly diligently invite and pursue input from others. Number nine, work hard to ask questions 
rather than make statements. Work hard to ask questions rather than make statements. In the UK, there's a saying that there is nothing more arrogant than an unsolicited opinion. doesn't mean we don't offer unsolicited opinions, but we do have a category for that's, that's arrogant. You know, one of the things I found in coming over here, just as a cultural thing, not saying a church thing, but a cultural thing, people are pretty clear with their opinions over here. Boom, you're having it. Whereas British people say, oh, I'm... I wouldn't want to mention it, I don't, I don't really know. Whereas in Australia, bang, you're having it. That can be an imbibed pride. We have it too. There's an imbibed pride in Britain. It's called complaint. We moan about everything. We whine about everything because we think, oh, this is just rubbish. God's just treated me so badly. I'm just going to have a good whinge. And that's why you call us the whinging palms. It's true. I don't perceive that here. But I think that same pride operates as a strength of statement rather than a question. I see it in my own life too. So I'm not preaching as one who's saying, don't do that. I'm preaching as one saying, that's my temptation too. But I think if we're going to cultivate humility, we need to ask questions and not make statements. See, our statements reveal pride because they reveal that I do see this accurately, I do see my own heart accurately, and this is the way it is. Maybe not. Maybe you don't see your heart accurately. Maybe you don't see the situation accurately. Maybe there's more to it that you didn't realize. That could be discerned with a question, but not a statement. Number 10, finally, regularly laugh with others at yourself. This is important. If you don't know how to do that, take up golf. That always cultivates profound humility because you realize, I suck, and it's just horrendous, and they're all laughing. But regularly laugh with yourselves at others. One of the ways we can observe pride in our own lives, one of the ways you will observe pride in your own life is this. When other people are laughing at you, you don't think it's funny. That's how it functions. And so you're the kind of butt end of the joke, and it is very funny, and everybody can confess that, yes, this is very funny. You did do that. You looked like an idiot in that pink top. No, I didn't. No, I did not. I did not look idiot. No, hang on, hang on. It's only a joke. It's just... It's just a joke. Whereas the humble guy says, yeah, it did look pretty stupid. And he laughs. Because he's not that bothered about their opinion of himself in terms of, why do you look at me like that? He's happy to laugh along because he's humbled. He has a low opinion of himself and he's not greatly affected by what other people think. He knows that even the jest is a sign of affection and because there's a closeness. Number 10, regularly laugh with ourselves, with others at yourself. Listen, we have received an incredible call. It is a glorious, profound call on our lives. It's greater than John Basilone's. And so by God's grace, let us work hard to walk in a manner worthy of the call. How? Walking in a manner worthy of the call will require that we eagerly maintain unity among us all. Folks, I want to encourage you, let's fan that into flame in our lives. Let us maintain the unity. Let us eagerly maintain the unity by pursuing gentleness and forbearance and patience with one another. And above all, to help that function, let's work hard to cultivate humility in our lives. A humility that genuinely says, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And it's not about me, it's about preferring these others in this room. And as we do that, would we respond in unity for the glory of God? Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the clarity of expression. Lord, you don't leave us guessing as we come into Ephesians 4. You make it very detailed and very pertinent and very accurate. And Lord, where we see ourselves in the mirror, would we go away and make changes? Would we not just leave here affected by a sermon? But would we leave here affected that we have heard the voice of the Lord and in God's grace, he's putting his finger on things in our lives for grace-motivated change. Lord, I pray for us as a local church, would we, would we specialize in unity? Would there be a strength in our souls and love and affection towards one another? Lord, help us to be tight for your glory and help us to cultivate humility. Lord, we want to be like you, humble and gentle. So Lord, help us to do that by your grace, for your glory, Lord. Amen.